one of the things, before I start talking about Zwingli, one of the things that I want you to listen for is that context affects the way we understand things, context affects the way we read things, the way we see things. So let me tell you a little story. Um, I grew up in California, but most of my professional career has been on the East Coast. So I think it was like for my 20th high school reunion, I went back to California to go to the event, um, get all dressed up. My father, bless his heart, you know, never got to see me dressed up. He pretty much only saw me in jeans. So he wants to take a picture. He's posing me in all these different ways. And ultimately, the picture that they put up on the piano in the living room is me with my hand on the back of an empty chair, think of a wingback chair, standing in front of the fireplace or something like that, okay? And for years, that picture was happily sitting on the piano. You need to know, I have two brothers. They, got, they both got married in their 40s, within six months of each other. And when I went home for Christmas... On one side of the piano is a picture of my older brother with his wife. On the picture, on the left side, there's a picture of my younger brother with his wife. And in the center, there's a picture of me with my hand on the back of an empty chair. (laughs) Now, how do you think my parents looked at that picture? Okay, context. Context makes a difference. And we're going to see this in Zwingli's life. All right. Now, when I teach, I always start by asking a few questions from the previous lessons. It activates our memories, helps us all get on the same page. And actually, cognitive psychologists have found that this helps us remember, retain that information longer. So think back to um, the two weeks that we had Derek Cooper with us. And one of the things that he said is, we really can't talk about the Protestant Reformations. What he said, people call it today, that period was the European Reformations. Why did he say that? What about the Catholic Church? They were Catholic, that's right. They were, and it was they, they were reforming within. So part of one of the things that happened is it wasn't just Protestant. Ultimately, we wouldn't have just reform because we would have Protestant churches, but the Catholic church was also reforming. What else? What else? Why does he call it reformations plural and not singular? Exactly, right? He says the ideas of the ref- of the Reformation, of reform, have been floating around for a long time. And ultimately, there are lots of pockets of reform happening. And in the end, we're going to have many different Protestant churches. There's not going to be just one Protestant church that comes out of the Reformations. Okay. One more question. So he talked about the fact that there had been people before Luther who had been trying to reform the church, um, but the movements didn't become widespread. What helped Luther become more successful in That's right. That's right. So he had the support of Frederick, Frederick III, I think, of Saxony, who was, who was his protector. Okay, what else helped Luther? Printing technology. Absolutely. The printing press. So now we have a whole publishing enterprise 
that's going to help spread ideas more quickly and make it uh, make those ideas go to a broader audience. All right. This is going to keep moving, and this is going to be bad, isn't it? I'm not sure that's better, but we'll try. All right. So now let's turn our attention to Zwingli. Zwingli was born in the canton, in a little village in the canton or state of St. Gallen in the Swiss Confederation. At that time, Switzerland was a loose confederation of, of 13 states. They operated pretty independently with respect to their internal affairs and with respect to their dealings with other countries. Think of, and so you can see, um, he was born in Wildhaus, and this is a picture of Wildhaus modern times. But you can imagine little villages nestled among the Alps. The people are primarily shepherds or farmers. They are primarily poor. Zwingli's father was a leader in the community, and that, that helped in terms of the course of Zwingli's life. The people of St. Gallen were um, known for being fierce fighters, and actually the Swiss people as a whole were known for being really good soldiers. And one of the main sources of income in St. Gallen was that they, the men would be hired out to be mercenary soldiers for sometimes for the Pope, sometimes for, for other countries, because they were known to be really good fighters. This is a time when Swiss patriotism is really strong, um, and, and we're going to see... Um, remember Derek Cooper said that Daily life, political life, and religious life are all intertwined together. And we're going to see this played out in terms of Zwingli's ministry. Zwingli, here's a portrait of him, was the third of nine children. His primary education was under the study of his uncle. His father and his uncle were pleased with how well Zwingli did with his studies. So ultimately, he gets sent to um, Basel for his secondary education. He'll go on to study at the University of Vienna and to the University of Basel. He was known for his sharp mind and, like Luther, for his musical ability. He played several instruments and he sang. When he was at Basel, Zwingli came under the influence by, of Thomas Wittenbach. So again, remember the ideas about reforming the church, they're floating all around. Salvation, salvation by faith alone, the authority of scripture, the criticisms of the Roman church. For Zwingli and for other Swiss reformers like Leo Judd, Thomas Wittenbach, is said to really have had an influence. And he said, the time is not far distant when the old scholastic theology will be swept away and the ancient doctrines of the church be revived. God's word is the foundation of all truth. Absolution by priests is a cheat. Christ's death is the only ransom for our souls. So Zwingli's biographers are going to tell us that they believe Wittenbach planted the seed in um, Swingley's heart that would later lead to his coming to salvation. At the age of 22 in 1506, Zwingli becomes a, is ordained, and for 10 years he serves as the parish priest in the town of Glarus. Although he'd had very little theological training prior to that point, he takes his pastoral responsibilities really seriously. He regularly visits the people of his, of his parish, and 
This is when he seriously, very seriously, is beginning to study the word. He later wrote, Though I was very young, ecclesiastical duties inspired in me more fear than joy, because I knew and remained convinced that I would give an account of the blood of the sheep which would perish as a consequence of my carelessness. In, and so he becomes a parish priest. He's there for about 10 years. During this time, the men of Glarus are called by the Papal States to fight against the French. Zwingli went with the men as the chaplain, um, and he fought with them in several campaigns in Italy. They were victorious, but the life as mercenaries encouraged poor behaviors. The men were violent, they were drinking, they were licentious, they were generally disorderly. And Zwingli is going to, during this time, really become convinced that mercenary service is immoral, even to the Pope. However, for several years, Zwingli actually enjoyed monetary benefits for, for his service because Pope Julius III granted Zwingli an annual pension in return for his service. Now, during the time in Glarus, he starts to learn Greek because he wants to study the New Testament in the original language. In contrast to Luther, who was compelled by his own personal salvation to study the word, Zwingli was compelled to study because he felt that he was responsible for the people in his parish and that if he went wrong, if he led them astray, there would be a consequence, not, not just for himself, but also for the people. One of Zwingli's um, friends wrote about, wrote about him saying that... Um, Zwingli turned his eyes to heaven, for he would have no other interpreter than the Holy Ghost himself. Zwingli became famous for studying the word and only relying on God's spirit to help him interpret the word. When he was faced with passages that are difficult to interpret, his rule was you go to clearer clearer passages to interpret them. He wouldn't um, it's not that he didn't read the works of other people like Jerome or um, Augustine, but he looked at those books, those commentators, as in the same way that one would turn to a friend and say, hey, what do you think about this passage? Okay, the only, the only authority for him was Scripture itself. So... He becomes an effective preacher in Glarus, but he starts to preach about the evils of mercenary service. The men in Glarus actually, they rely on mercenary service as a way to earn money so that they can put food on the table. So he's not too popular. He's, he, so at eventually... He thinks it would be more advantageous if he left Glarus, and he takes a position at Einsendeln. And this turned out to be really good for him in two ways. First, it's a smaller community, so he has more time to study. It's also the case, oh, so I should tell you, I mean, he... um, Because he wanted to be able to carry parts of the Bible with him at all times, he copied out by hand um, many books of the New Testament. At that time, if you wanted to carry a Bible, you were carrying something that was really big. So he he copied out the epistles. Ultimately, he's going to he's going to memorize the entire New Testament 
and parts of the Old Testament. Now, um, you can imagine if you're getting this, you're soaking yourself in God's word this much, and you're open to the spirit working in your life, things are going to change. So in Eisendown, Zwingli, Zwingli starts to bring more aspects of his life under the authority of God's word. In Glarus, he was kind of known for um, engaging in some worldly activities. He struggled to remain sexually pure. In Eisendown, he's, he's bringing much more of his life to walk in the manner in which in, can do be consistent with what he's preaching. Okay? The second way in which Eisendown turned out to be really important for him is that it actually gave him, even though it's a smaller community, it gave him a larger audience. There, um, there's an abbey in Einzendel, and it attracted hundreds of pilgrims. There's uh, a statue, and I'll show you another picture of it, um, a statue of the Virgin Mary. And people believe that this statue of the Virgin Mary had the power to bring about miracles. At the entrance to the monastery, there was an inscription, Here, receive a remission of sins. People from all over Switzerland and other countries made the long pilgrimage to Einsendeln to receive the so-called remission of sins. Okay, so here's the um, statue of the Virgin Mary. Okay, now, I've told you that context... Context affects the way we do things, what we do. So here you are, imagine you're Zwingli. You see hundreds of pilgrims walking. I mean, they're, it's not like us. They, they can't hop a plane to travel long distances or drive or, or take a train. They're walking, they're making this pilgrimage so that they can receive a blessing from the Virgin Mary. They can receive remission of their sins. They can receive some kind of healing. Imagine you're Zwingli. You're studying God's word. What are some themes that you think he might start preaching on? Idolatry. Idolatry. Absolutely. What else? Yeah. Salvation through Christ alone. Yes, this becomes, this becomes a very big theme for him, right? Christ alone saves, and he saves everywhere. Not Mary, not, but Christ is the Savior. Not men, but God forgives sins. Not works, but faith is the way of justification and eternal life. Again, Christ who was once offered upon the cross is the sacrifice and victim that had made satisfaction for the sins of believers to all eternity. Can unprofitable works, long pilgrimages, offerings, images, the invocation of the Virgin or of the saints secure for you the grace of God? God looks at the heart, and our hearts are far from him. Anything else? So he's really very big now. Salvation is from God alone. Think about these pilgrims traveling distances. Another theme for him becomes God is everywhere. Do not imagine that God is in this temple more than in any other part of creation. Whatever be the country in which you dwell, God is around you and hears you as well as at Our Lady of Eisendown. So again, the themes that emerge in his preaching, they're affected by what he sees around him. Toward the end of 1518, Zwingli accepts the position of people's priest at the great minster or great cathedral of Zurich. 
And he starts by laying out what his plan is for his ministry. And this is it. The life of Christ has been too long hidden from the people. I shall preach upon the whole gospel of Matthew, chapter after chapter, without human commentaries, drawing solely from the fountains of Scripture, and seeking understanding by constant and earnest prayer. It is to God's glory, to the praise of his only Son, to the real salvation of souls, and their edification in the true faith that I shall devote my ministry. So on January 1st, 1519, he begins to preach through the Gospel of Matthew. He'll follow this by going through Acts and then through the epistles in the New Testament. He becomes known for his expository preaching. Now, before we go further, I want to tell you a little bit about the economic context. Okay? During this time in the early 1500s, the traditional guilds were like silk weavers and linen weavers um, were becoming less important. Printers, the printing press, opened up this whole new industry of publishers um, creating books and pamphlets that would be distributed all over. Blacksmiths. Blacksmiths were actually, in Zurich, very important. You know, if, if mercenary service is an important revenue stream for you, you need weapons. So the blacksmiths are there to make weapons. And Zurich is a focal point for trade. They're bringing iron ore in um, and trading, trading that iron ore for salt and grain and manufactured goods. But the big thing here, again, is that mercenary service is very important. Men can be hired as individually to go work for or go be a soldier for whomever is getting ready to go into war. But the whole city actually is also recruited. And if the whole city goes, then, then some of that money actually goes into the city coffers as well as into the pockets of city officials who are paid to convince the men of the city to join whatever war effort is, um, is being promoted. It's in this context that... Zwingli starts to really preach hard against being hired as mercenary soldiers. So here's one of his um, sermons. Reflect on the evils of war. Think now that a foreign mercenary came into thy land with violence, laid waste thy fields, thy vineyards, drove off thy cattle, insulted thy daughters, kicked the dear wife, Set fire to thy dwelling. Wouldst thou not think that if the heaven did not open and rain fire on such villainy, there were no God, and yet thou doest this all to another and callest it the right of war? Swingley was not a pacifist. He was incredibly patriotic. He believed that um, they had the right to defend their country. But he believed that this practice of being hired out as mercenary mercenary service um, soldiers was morally bankrupting the community. So you can imagine that as he continues to preach on this message, he develops enemies. Somewhat fortunately for Zwingli, um, the plague hits Zurich. And one out of four people in Zurich dies because of this. And anybody who could leave the city left. But Zwingli, remember what's what's his passion? His passion is for 
his people and that he is the shepherd, the caretaker for his people. So he stays in Zurich during the plague and cares for the people in the city. Ultimately, he's going to get the plague himself, nearly dies. Um, But because he recovers, he sees this as a sign of God's blessing upon his ministry. And because he stayed, he earns the gratitude of the people of the city because he was someone who voluntarily stayed to help them through the plague. In his, the, in his theology, I didn't, I didn't see a specific reference. It's not, that it, it's not that it's not there. It came out in one of his poems. Um, but I don't know that I really saw it sort of in his theology. That's a really good question. Um, <clears throat> what I want to do now is to... Talk about what I see as three themes that kind of cut across his ministry. First, first and foremost is the supremacy of Scripture. Issues of faith and practice should be determined through a careful study of God's Word. By taking this stand, Zwingli is saying the Pope is not the final arbiter on any decision. The final arbiter is always God's word. So as a result of all his study in God's word, he becomes more and more convinced that many practices within the church are the result of, they're just simply man-made rules. So for example, he attacks the church's rules about fasting at particular times. During the season of Lent in 1522, a major public controversy over Zwingli's preaching occurred when a group of men intentionally disregarded the fasting rule and they ate smoked sausages. This became known as the uh, affair of the sausages. And Zwingli defended the action. He defended it saying that Fasting was not mandated by scripture, and therefore it should be voluntary. Another practice that he challenged was celibacy of the clergy. In the summer of 1522, Zwingli and a few other priests petitioned the the Bishop of Constance to allow priests to be married. Zwingli, when he went through passages like those in 1 Timothy and Titus, where we have the qualifications for elder or bishop. There are references to being a husband, being a good father. So in his view, the idea that the clergy needed to be celibate, that was a man-made rule. And furthermore, Zwingli argued that it encouraged encouraged the clergy to sin. Um, Now, Historians say that Zwingli had a personal stake in this petition because it's believed that he secretly married Anna Reinhardt, who was a young widow, in 1522. He would officially marry her in 1524, just three months before the birth of their first child. All right. So I want to say this gently, okay, that... um, A second underlying theme is this idea that a Christian government was responsible for ensuring that the people adhere to following God's word. Now, I say this gently. I mean, because it was very clear, Zingli recognized, he recognized that God put rulers over nations. Sometimes you have a ruler who follows God. Sometimes you have a ruler who does not. He, he recognized that Christ taught that we render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's. But when we look at how Zwingli operated, he used the city government 
to move forward his reforms. When he couldn't bring about the, the changes that um, he thought were necessary within the Catholic Church, he went to the city, to the city government to make those changes. So Zwingli was often called upon to defend the reform movement at large public gatherings, including the secular leaders of, of Zurich, the members of the clergy, and lay people. These meetings really show how religious life and political life were intertwined. The meetings were called disputations or debates. They were convened by the city council, who invited the church to send representatives. This, this idea is really different from the way we as Americans view religious life and political life. We, we argue for clear separation of church and state. That's not, that's not the way Zwingli operated. Um, in 1522, did I put that up there? Um, Zwingli actually resigns his post at Great Minster, and he takes an official appointment um, <clears throat> from the city council to be the preacher of Zurich. This, this would be like the city of Wilmington saying, Bo Matthews, we want you to be the preacher of Wilmington. Go preach to the city. <laughs> now, for Zwingli, taking this position was completely consistent with his beliefs because there's a tacit agreement that the city council is going to be under the authority of Scripture. Okay? In um, 1523, at what was called the First Disputation, Zwingli presented his 67 theses and argued against representatives from the Catholic Church. The bishop sent a delegation led by the vicar general. Unfortunately, the vicar general was not allowed to discuss theology in front of laymen. Well, the members of the city council, they are laypeople. The audience, it's people from the community. They're all lay people. So the city council ultimately decides that Zwingli may continue to preach and goes beyond this to say that all other preachers in Zurich should be teaching according to what is in God's word. In, yeah. Mm-hmm. What's the story with Zwingli the Catholic Church? By the time he takes this appointment to buy from the, on the authority of the city council, he's broken from the church. But prior to this time, Swingley was actually known as being a, a fairly nice guy. You know, he, he was friendly, friendly with peasants. He was friendly with leaders, with tradesmen, and he enjoyed, he enjoyed the um, good relationship with the church, with the Catholic church, with the Roman church for a long time during his ministry, even though he was preaching against practices. Um, there were certain Bishops that just kind of said, you know, oh, that's Zwingli. That, you know, don't worry about that. So he stayed within the church for quite a while. All right? <clears throat> yeah. Example of city council dealing 
Um, so Zwingli believed that if you preach and teach what's in God's word, that ultimately the people will come to call for these changes. Okay, in the city council, there's a small council and a large council. They're made up of... The large council has... Um, like leaders of guilds, um, tradesmen, um, but they, they're, not, they're not clergy. And the small council, I think, is one that has sort of their nobility. Um, Zwingli is going to try to persuade them, based on his teaching, that certain things are the, certain things are the right things to do. So, for example... Um, in September 1523, there's the second disputation. And this is a two- or three-day meeting. There are sort of differing accounts. And it's to discuss whether or not statues of saints and other icons should be removed. It's said that about 900 people attended this meeting. And ultimately, the discussion leads to an argument over whether the city council or the church has the authority to make this decision. The council itself doesn't reach a clear majority. So the council determines that pastors just should not preach on this topic. Okay? In 1524, the council will decide that images should be removed from Zurich, but they allow that the surrounding rural congregations can make their own decision as to whether or not to remove images from their um, churches. In 1523, so going um, later in 1523, Zwingli asked the council to abolish the Catholic Mass. Okay, but it wasn't until 1525 when the council actually makes a decision and um, by a very narrow margin, it abolishes the Catholic Mass within, within the city. Okay, so Zwingli uses the government to bring about reforms that he wants for the, for the church. Now, eventually... Zwingli is going to form a religious political alliance of the Swiss cantons called the Christian Civic Alliance. And the alliance is analogous to the Confederacy of Swiss states, except that there is a doctrinal statement, confession, that you have to agree to before you can become part of the alliance. Um, as you might imagine, here you have the predominantly Protestant cantons forming an alliance. So you have the predominantly Catholic cantons deciding they're going to form their own group too. Okay? In 1529, the two groups, they, they engage in some kind of battle. The, the descriptions are really vague, and apparently no blood was shed. But somehow, they decide that the, the Protestant cantons win. And this victory sort of, in theory, paves the way for the Catholic cantons to join the alliance. And the idea was that each canton could decide for itself whether or not it would accept the ideas of the Reformation and agree to the doctrinal statement. Essentially, the Catholic cantons, which were, uh, which turned out to be the forest or mountain cantons, they they didn't think this was a an acceptable outcome. Furthermore, the forest cantons would not agree to stop mercenary service, which was part of the of the confession. The mountain cantons, the forest cantons, they. They relied on mercenary service as one of the main revenue streams in, for, their, for their people. So ultimately what happens is the 
um, the civ- Christian, the Christian Civic Alliance decides to block shipments of grain to the forest cantons. And then in this way, they hope to force the people to um, accept the reforms of the church. Zwingli, Zwingli actually argued against this. He thought it was better just to go to war than to slowly starve the people. In response to the blockade, the Catholic cantons attacked Zurich in October 1531. Um, the men of Zurich were alone to fight this battle because the, the Protestant cantons weren't ready for war and by the time they got there, the battle was over. Um, Zwingli died in this battle with about 30 other uh, priests or pastors from Zurich. There are different accounts to how Zwingli died, but I'm going to share um, Oswald Myconius, his friend's account, because it is somewhat colorful. Um, three times Zwingli was thrown to the ground by the advancing forces, but in each case he stood again. On the fourth occasion, a spear reached his chin, and he fell to his knees, saying, They can kill the body, but not the soul. And after these words, he fell asleep in the Lord. After the battle, the enemy had time to look for Zwingli's body. He was found. Judgment was passed on him. His body was quartered and burnt to ashes. Three days after the foes had gone away, Zwingli's friends came to see if any trace of him was left. And what a miracle. In the midst of the ashes lay his heart, whole and undamaged. Now, I don't know if that's true. It is the case that um, there are several accounts of of the um, Catholic soldiers finding um, Zwingli's body, chopping it up, and burning it. Okay, heart left undamaged. You can decide that for yourself. All right. So Zwingli's vision of a confederacy of Swiss states that was united under one theology, ultimately it leads to his demise. Okay, now I've killed him off, but I think there are three things that you need to know more about Zwingli that I haven't mentioned. Okay, and... Crickets, the time is flying. All right. 1529 was the Marburg Colloquy. Um, Professor Cooper talked about that. Zwingli and Luther disagreed on the Eucharist, um, but they agreed on many, many fundamental doctrine. And even though the writings preceding that, um, that meeting were pretty... aggressive, not nice. Um, The descriptions of that meeting were, um, seemed to be that the meeting was really pretty collegial and that um, it wasn't this hot contest between bitter, bitter kind of battle between uh, Luther and Zwingli. All right. A new liturgy. Remember, they abolished the mass if you're not going to do the Mass, what are you going to do? And this, um, I don't have time to um, talk about the details, but in 1531, Zwingli describes the order of service that was used in Zurich to replace the Mass, and this was the order of service that included communion. <clears throat> Zwingli felt that communion should only be done about four times a year. If we were to walk into that service we would recognize it. It is very much the description of the table, a table covered with a cloth, with the unleavened bread. They had wine, not grape juice, um, the wine. And then the, <clears throat> the readings from First Corinthians. It's very much, very much like what we do today. I was, I was just surprised um, that this tradition is something that we, we continue on today. And 
The third thing that's, that's really important is the dispute with the Anabaptists. Um, Ostens- Anabaptists were, there were younger reformers within Zurich um, who felt that Zwingli was going too slowly. They also believed that Zwingli wasn't being consistent in certain issues, that, um, that the church shouldn't be, um, be sort of dictated to by the city government. Um, the, the focal issue became infant baptism versus believer or adult baptism. Ultimately, Zwingli comes down very, very hard against, in, against um, adult or believer baptism. He, he believes that infant baptism is it's a sign. It's just like circumcision was a sign um, of that infant boy being part of a faith community. That infant baptism was a sign of this child being part of this faith community, a pledge on the part of the parents to raise a child in a Christian home. This became an incredibly bitter dispute, I think because for Zwingli, the Anabaptists were separating themselves, forming their own church. And that for Zwingli, with his idea of this church state, this separation sort of was like anarchy or would lead to anarchy. Consequently, they came down very hard on the Anabaptists. Ultimately, what happens is um, this leads to the city council um, declaring that once baptized, no one should be rebaptized. And if you're going, to, if you will not. If you won't baptize your infant, you need to leave Zurich. Eventually, they take to um, uh, executing Felix Mons by drowning for continuing to baptize adults. Believe um, so. Felix Mons, and we'll talk about him next week when we talk about the Anabaptists. All right, we have ten minutes to do what I really want to get to. All right. These are the 67. These are the 67. Let's just start passing. Um, articles of Zwingli. Okay, let's get back here. So pass them around. What I want you to do. Okay, let's have. This side of the room, books keep passing. There's got to be, there's got to be papers floating around here someplace, right? You guys are getting to them. Okay, this side of the room, I want you to look at the first thirty. This side, you look at the rest. What I want you to do is, in looking at them. Is the back row ending up with any? Yes? Okay. I want you to take a look at them, and I want you to see, think about what ways, and talk with whoever you're next to, what ways do the religious and social context of his time affect the doctrinal statements that he highlights in, thank you, in his 67 theses, okay? So you kind of have to think about what's he putting in there? What's it a reaction to? Because when you look at all of them, these aren't necessarily, especially as you get to some, there's some clusters of them, that they're just not things that we would, necessarily highlight, I don't think.
things here that are very specific that, um, I mean, a lot of it is, you know, is, is general um, uh, Protestant theology, okay? I mean, but there's stuff in here like 24 that I think you really need to understand the social context of the That no Christian is bound to do things which God has not decreed. Therefore, one may eat at all times all food from which one learns that the decree about cheese and butter is a Roman swindle. Okay. That's so, right. I don't know what that's about. I mean, I get the thing about um, what Peter said and stuff like that about, you know, whether, you know, clean and unclean. I'm not sure if it's tied to that, but I have absolutely no idea what the relationship is to that specific thing and why. And so, so I think there's definitely things in here that are related to Catholic, Roman Catholic yes. culture. Yes. So, of, sure. of the time. Yeah. Things that we wouldn't, if we were coming up with, we wouldn't necessarily say, here are the 67 most important things. Okay, so what else? I think number 11 goes along with uh, talking about classes, titles, and clerical realm. Yes. So, again, that, mm-hmm. we heard with Luther that he was against all the <clears throat> indulgences, the money, and, and all of that uh, that was going on within the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. 26? Yeah. Under the time of nation, falsehood, it's insignia, plate, etc. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Number 33? Yeah, it sounds like he doesn't want to set up a system where the mercenaries would just kind of load up the church with stuff that they plunder. Mm-hmm. He must be suggesting they were already doing that. And he was like, hey, quit doing that. That's, isn't that what mm-hmm. the question is asking? Mm-hmm. And on that same line, they must have been caught cheating in number 30. Like, it must have been common knowledge that priests were getting yes. some sex on the side. <laughs> yes. Yeah, over here it says they can hire prostitutes, but they can't marry. I think that's like 49. <laughs> <laughs> if you go back to, in, in three, if you go back to the beginning of what, of one, you have, hence Christ is the only way to salvation. That would have been from watching the pilgrim. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. <clears throat> Number 14. Okay, so now the question the question for us then today is how does our social context, our political context, our our economic everyday life, how does it affect the way we read scripture, the way we practice our lives of faith? How does it affect the things that we that we that we focus on? How does it, and does it do it in ways that we, like the people of Zwingli's times, are blinded by some things? How does our context affect us? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, yeah. Yes. You want to say some more? Can you hear? So individuality, um, we are an individualistic society. Most, certainly, certainly the 
the societies that we see in the, both the Old and New Testament, certainly the society that Zwingli lived in was what we call a collectivist society. It's, it's group, it is really group-oriented. That individualism that we hold so strongly, it's just part of, it's part of who we are. It affects, um, it, we just grow up in that. We bring that to scripture when we read scripture. And so that's something that may be causing us to interpret some things in ways that those who come from a collectivist society, those from when it was written, might not see it in the same way. Yeah. Um, we, we have a habit of saying, saying that if we say something is backed by scripture, it's, it's okay. And um, in a lot of cases, because that's done, it ends up whitewashing the, the scripture and presenting that, they, okay, compromise is okay, which has done a, a big job in taking our eyes off the real truth and making it more what we think it, it should be. Okay. Can I see your hand up? Go ahead. Um, we say that we believe in separation of church and state, and yet, as we see with Zwingli, we expect that the government is going to, even though they don't support a Christian church, we think that they will support Christian ethics, Christian mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or else. Mm-hmm. When they don't, then we get all bent out of shape. Mm-hmm. All right. Done. But I think the other half of that is our individuality also shapes our politics and religion. I think of two examples. Like that allows Joe Biden to say, I don't personally like abortion, but I support it on a state level. Or it involves somebody to say, you know, we elected Trump as president, not as Pope, and draw that strong line between the two and say, Ethics should be kept separate from politics. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I think there's a big fight between the words of equal in our society and equitable. I, I use it particularly on politics. Like the boys looking over the fence to see the ball game. You have a tall boy in the middle. They have different sized stools. And so it's the idea of equitable is everybody gets to achieve some component in our society, like an education or, or health care or whatever. It's going to take different investments per individual to get them to sit over the fence. And the short boys going to need a taller stool with more risk of falling off and more and a huge more cost. And I think right now we're fighting a big cultural Congress fight over equal and equitable. So if you give equal care to everybody, the short and middle boy doesn't get to see the fence. And uh, I think there's a big struggle in Congress right now. That's what to do with those two words. Okay, thank you. All right, last person. The, um, Let's say we, we all agree we're in a prosperous society. And if you're in a prosperous society, then you would ask, well, what is the preacher going to say about that? And he can either say, watch out, Jesus talks about prosperity, or the preacher can say, oh, your prosperity is okay. And, you know, if you have that gospel, the prosperity mm-hmm. gospel. So that, that would ar- argue that that's one way you can steer it. You can say, it's okay if you're really rich and you just keep accumulating. So we don't do that. <laughs> all right. I I want to thank you all for your attention today and